Today we are going to finish up our series on a Christmas carol. I know for those of you that have been paying attention to this series, you've, you've seen us do Christmas past and Christmas present, and some of you were wondering, wait a second, if I remember the story right, there is another ghost. And today we will be covering the ghost of Christmas future. But before we get into all that, I do want to wish you a happy new year. Uh, you made it. It's 2023. Um, for those of you that uh, are here for the first time, welcome. We, we love seeing your face here with us. Uh, for those of you that are, are here all the time and you see me up on this stage uh, wearing this get up, uh, we're starting the year off on the right foot, all right? We're just, I'm not going to make a habit of it, but you know, every once in a while I like to look nice. Um, and as you know, since this is the first sermon of the year, it can only go up from here. So, uh, <laughs> without any further ado, uh, we are in week three of our three-week uh, Christmas series called A Christmas Carol, How Not to Be Haunted by Your Past, Your Present, and Your Future. Uh, what we're doing this year is we're, we're following the story, the Charles Dickens classic, A Christmas Carol, as a way of helping us get a fresh perspective on the Christmas story. So over the past couple of weeks, we've talked about how the, the ghost of Christmas past is all about reclamation, about reclaiming your past, and that no matter where you came from or what is in your past, Christ came to redeem it on Christmas. We looked at the genealogy found in Matthew chapter 1 and saw how God placed these messed up people in the lineage of Christ to demonstrate that God can use any type of past any screwed up family to bring forth his glory into the world. Amen? Amen. Last time we were talking about the ghost of Christmas present. And we learned about how God wants us to bring, wants to bring Christmas into the world through us. He wants us to first work Christmas in us so that he can show what Christmas is all about to the world. So we looked at Mary and her response to the angel's message that she would miraculously conceive a child, and that child would be the Messiah. And we learned that when we accept the word of God by faith and put our trust in him, God can do great things through our lives, just like Mary did. So today we're going to be looking at the last of the three ghosts that Dickens describes in his book. Uh, Dickens calls it the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Uh, you probably know it more, uh, more commonly as the ghost of Christmas future. And today we learned that the ghost of Christmas future prepares us for eternity. But first, before we get into our sermon, I want to give you a little synopsis of the story in case you haven't heard it in a while. Ebenezer Scrooge, as you well know, is a covetous old sinner. Uh, his chief sins were avarice and greed. Uh, however, contempt for his fellow man was probably pretty high on the list. On Christmas Eve, Scrooge is visited by the ghost of his former business partner, Jacob Marley, who's been cursed to roam the earth, fettered and shackled by the chains he forged in his life. And those chains represent his sin. And Marley warns Scrooge that unless he changes his ways, he too will end up just like him, eternally imprisoned by the chains of his life. So in order to convince him of this fact, Scrooge, uh, Marley tells Scrooge that three specters will visit him, uh, the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas yet to come. 
So the ghost of Christmas past takes him on a tour of his past. He revisits all of the regrets and, and uh, events in his life that uh, made him turn into the man he is today. Over and over again, we see that Scrooge has chosen his career, his money, and his business over family or a loving marriage or his fellow human beings. Then the ghost of Christmas present arrives and shows him all of the joy and the merriment that he's missing out on because of his selfish and greedy and miserly ways. He, he observes the family of his employee, Bob Cratchit, and meets his young son, Tiny Tim. I hated that nickname when I was growing up. <laughs> Can't tell you how many times I've heard it. Uh, Tiny Tim uh, is stricken with some unnamed sickness and and it's implied that he's needlessly wasting away because his parents can't afford the proper medical treatment that he requires. And the ghost warns Ebenezer that young Tim will surely die unless Scrooge changes his ways. And finally, and more hauntingly than all the previous ghosts combined, the ghost of Christmas yet to come appears. This ghost is he's dressed like the Grim Reaper and does not utter a single word. He conveys his eerie tidings solely through the motion of his dreary pointing. And at this point in the story, the, the message takes on a much darker tone. Scrooge is first taken to see this uh, assemblage of businessmen, uh, men that Scrooge knew and associated with and they're discussing the death of one of their associates. These men seem unaffected by his passing. One quips he would only go to the funeral if they were serving lunch. Uh, the others doubt if anyone will even show up at all. The next scene is some dingy hovel in some dark corner of the city where a group of opportunistic servants try to sell off some of that dead man's belongings. One grabbed some silverware from the cupboard. Another took the sheets and bed curtains off of his deathbed. And a third one took the very shirt off of his back that they were going to bury him, he, him in, as to not see it go to waste in the burying. The scene disturbs Scrooge so much that he asks the ghost to show him anyone who feels any sort of emotion relating to this man's death. So the ghost shows him a scene of a couple who are delighted to hear the news of his passing because it means they have a few more days to get their financial affairs in order. Scrooge is beset by this realization and he wonders if, if there's any tenderness at all associated with any death. And that's when the ghost returns him to the house of his employee, Bob Cratchit. Bob's family is grieved by the recent death of Tiny Tim. And they find solace in the hope that his memory would be a blessing from God. And here the, the story takes a turn from tenderness to terror. Scrooge wants to see his own future, so the ghost takes him past his former business place where all of the furniture is changed and a, a different man sits in the chair he once sat goes past his house where it's left empty and abandoned, and it, he lands in a dismal little cemetery where the ghost motions over to a gravestone. Scrooge warily approaches, uh, suspecting what he might see on the stone, but he's terrified. It, 
it may be too late. He worries that his future, like that marker, is set in stone. He worries his course cannot be altered. So he pleads with the final ghost. These are the words that Dickens penned. Are these the shadows of things that will be, or are they the shadows of things that may be only? Never stoic, the, the ghost stature remains unchanged. So reservedly, Scrooge looks down at the stone, and on it is inscribed his own name. At this, Scrooge comes to the realization that what he did not wish to believe was true. Those horrid scenes of unfriendly friends and opportunistic servants and delighted tenants were all reacting to his own death. And at this, the sum total of the three ghosts' warnings hits him all in this one moment. He must change. He must repent of his ways and live differently. So Scrooge appeals to the spirit. He says, I am not the man I was, and I will not be the man I must have been. Assure me that I yet, I yet may change these shadows you have shown me by an altered life. I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. I will live in the past and the present and the future. These spirits of all three shall live within me. I'll not shut out the lessons that they teach. Tell me I may sponge away the writing on this stone. Scrooge here puts into words a fear common to all humanity. Can my future really be changed? And the answer comes to Ebenezer Scrooge and to all of us, yes, a resounding yes. Because of Christmas, our fate is not set in stone. See, there is hope of salvation because of Jesus. See, the ghost of Christmas future proclaims to us, our past can be forgiven and our future is not yet written. Really, the Christmas story itself, it contains several ghosts of Christmas yet to come, if you will. However, the Bible offers a different set of spiritual messengers. Not ghost, but angel. These apparitions brought good news instead of terror. The angels came to dispel fear instead of inspire it. Mary and Joseph would each receive heavenly sent messengers. These angels would inform them of what God was about to do in the world. Mary's angel showed up standing right in front of her, and Joseph's appeared in a dream, but both brought part of the answer to what God was up to in this little baby boy. They each revealed their part of God's plan for the future through this child. One told of who the baby was, and the other told of what this baby would do. This is what we read in Luke 1, what the angel says to Mary. He says this in verse 32. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. This child was to be the fulfillment of prophecy. He would be the long-promised Messiah. But more than that, he was the son of God himself. 
Not just any human Messiah or temporary Savior. His reign would be eternal, never-ending, forever. Because he is God himself. Surely Mary was connecting all of these prophetic dots in her head as the angel was delivering his message. Although how was she possibly to know all that this message would really mean? She remembered probably the story she grew up with of King David and the Lord's covenant with him to establish his throne. We read that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It says, I will make your name great. It's the same promise that's echoed to Mary. Like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. Jumping down to verse 16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, it doesn't take a a high-level scholar of the Bible to know that, well, God promised this to King David, his descendants did not live up to that promise. And by the time Mary and Joseph came along, there was no king of David's line sitting on the throne of Israel. But God's promises never fail. With Mary's knowledge of the scripture, she was no doubt familiar further with what the prophet Isaiah had said about the coming Messiah. A child that would be born in the the government upon his shoulders. He further prophesied a a branch would spring up from the stump of Jesse. Let's go there in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. You're all familiar with this one. We read it every Christmas. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah goes on in another prophecy in chapter 11. He says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a branch will bear fruit. The promise that God made was coming to fulfillment after all. Uh, The line of David, once royal, now carpenters and laborers like Joseph, Out of that line, God was bringing the dream back to life. He was bringing back a king to sit on the throne, and this time it was permanent. The angel tells Mary her her child will be God and king. This is a whirlwind of an announcement, but I'm sure it probably left her with more questions than it did answers. This had never been done before in human history. So surely she wanted to know what it would look like. All the while, an angel brings 
a different message to Joseph. We read that in Matthew 1, verse 20 and 21. He says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, Mary's angelic announcement probably uh, definitely inspired praise and thanksgiving. The message given to Joseph, while equally praiseworthy, was not the kind of joyous tidings Mary had received. Surely, it, it eased his worries, right? He, he was questioning whether or not he should put Mary away quietly, and, and this answered that nagging question inside Joseph's soul. It gave him heavenly confirmation of what he couldn't even begin to imagine. But that wasn't the only thing the angel came to say. See, Joseph is not told just who this child will be, but Joseph is told what this child's mission on earth would be. He will save his people from their sins. Maybe from, from this angelic announcement, from that mission, Joseph could have inferred what the fate of this baby boy may have been. Joseph knew this. There's only one way to provide a covering for sin. Something innocent must die. So Joseph, being a, a faithful and learned Jewish man, he knew what the scriptures said. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It's the blood that makes atonement for one's life. There's no other way to save people from their sins. I wonder if Joseph fully grasped this reality on that day. If he did, surely he would have remembered the priestly ritual from the Day of Atonement. He probably saw it himself. It's described in Leviticus 16. It says, On the Day of Atonement, the, the high priest dressed in specially made sacred garments would prepare himself by, by first washing with water. And then before making atonement for the people's sins, he had to sacrifice a bull for his own sins. Next, he would take two goats. One was chosen to be a sacrifice, and the other was selected to be the scapegoat. So he killed the first goat and carried its blood with him behind the veil into the most holy place. And there he sprinkled that blood on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, the, the mercy seat where God's spirit dwelled. God accepted this method as the priest's way of placing the blood between God and the tablets of the law that the Ark contained. See, from God's perspective, instead of seeing the law that the people transgressed, he would only see the blood that covered. This ritual provided a temporary covering that atoned 
for the nation's sin that year. At the end of this sprinkling, the priest would emerge from the holy place. And he would place his hands on the head of the other goat, the scapegoat. And over this animal, he would confess all of the people's sins. It would then be led off into the desert to symbolize those sins being carried away out of the camp into the wilderness, into the outer darkness. So maybe Joseph made that connection that night. Maybe it took him many years to realize what Jesus would have to do to save us from our sins. After all, this whole system of atonement was designed to foreshadow what Christ would do to save us from our sin. See, to Mary, the angel announced Jesus would be king. But to Joseph, the angel announced Jesus would be our savior. I want to spend the rest of our time this morning unpacking what that really means. What it means to be Jesus, our savior, and and why it's so important if we want to understand how Christmas prepares us for our future, for our eternity, for all of the Christmases yet to come. So at his birth, Jesus is called Savior. And what else could he come to save us from than the greatest affliction that affects mankind? Sin and its result, spiritual death, that causes separation from God. See, Jesus is our sacrifice. But Jesus is the true and better sacrifice. See, just as the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat to provide the covering for sin on the day of atonement, Jesus' blood was shed on the cross once and for all to completely, perfectly atone for all our sin. Leviticus 16, 30 through 34 describes it. It says, on this day the atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then, before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. It's a day of Sabbath rest. You must deny yourselves. It's a lasting ordinance. The priest who is anointed and ordained to succeed his father as high priest is to make atonement. is to put on the sacred linen garments and make atonement for the most holy place. The tent of meeting and the altar and for the priests and all the members of the community. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. The word atonement here essentially means to, to cover over or remove from sight. But notice the word that's used in connection with atonement. It says you'll be made clean never says you'll be forgiven. See, forgiveness always comes by faith. This was a ritual designed to teach the people how human they are, how not God 
they are. How much their sin offends a holy God. But it was merely temporary. See, over the course of the year, the people and the temple would become defiled again. This ritual had to be performed over and over and over again each year. But Christ's blood, it's sufficient to cover our eternal redemption. We read in Hebrews chapter 10, it says, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, that being Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he is made perfect forever. Those who are being made holy. See, not only did this provide This ritual in the Old Testament, not only did it provide covering for sin, it also cleansed the sacred space in which people encountered the presence of God. See, it was not only to cover their sin, it was to cleanse the place where their sin was covered. The blood of Jesus has the same dual purpose in our lives as Christians. Follow me here for a second. Not only does the blood of Jesus remove the stain of sin from our lives, it also cleanses us because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It is the thing that is making us holy over and over and over again. See, the blood of Jesus permanently covers our sin, but it also makes us holy. It makes us set apart for a divine purpose. That's what it means to be holy. The tabernacle in the Old Testament was designed and carefully laid out as a place of worship. It contained the Holy Spirit of God. And it was the only place that the people of God could go to make sacrifice for their sin and worship in his presence. But because the veil was torn on the day that Christ died, we now are the bearers of the Spirit of God. When he gave his Spirit to the church on the day of Pentecost, we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. Christian, you are specially designed and made with a purpose to carry the Spirit of God into the world. Why then do you defile your bodies? Why do you go after the lust of the flesh? Don't get mad at me. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. (laughs) Come on now. 
You were washed. You were sanctified. You've been justified in the name of Jesus and by the Spirit of God. I challenge you, go back and read in the book of Exodus. Read the descriptions of how the tabernacle was to be designed and laid out. Read the care and attention to detail God takes in describing and designing his earthly tent. And then remember he has called you to be the same. You are specially designed and laid out and built according to the purpose and plan of God. Jesus' blood washed away your sin and purified your body for a special purpose. You are not your own. Jesus is our Savior. But Jesus is also our scapegoat. He's the true and better scapegoat. See, not only was his blood the perfect covering for our sin, Jesus himself became the one who bore our sin. If we look back at that ritual described, there wasn't just one goat, right? There, there were two. The first goat was slaughtered, and its blood was used to purify the tabernacle and cover the mercy seats. The second goat was left alive to symbolically take on the sins of the people and carry them off out of the tabernacle, out of the camp, and out into the wilderness, the outer darkness. Leviticus 16 describes it. It says, when Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he should bring forward the live goat to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all of the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. And he shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place. And the man shall release it into the wilderness. This is what John the Baptist was prophetically declaring when he recognized Jesus from afar off and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I know, different animal. Same concept. See, truly it was on the cross that our sin was transferred onto Jesus. Isaiah 56, 6 says that we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of our sin, past, present, and future was borne by Christ on the cross. Like the scapegoat, he was led off to a place called Golgotha. And upon his death, he carried away our sins into outer darkness, never to be seen again. Jesus was the greater scapegoat because he came back. He rose from the grave, victorious over death. Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east 
is from the West so far removed. He has removed our transgressions from us. Micah 7.19 says, You again will have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea. When I was a kid, we read this in the King James Version. It said it would, he would hurl our sin into the sea of forgetfulness. So far removed are our sins from the presence of God that he will not remember and hold them to our account. But notice the, sin, the transfer of sin was not automatic. Look at verse 21. It says he is to lay both hands on the head of the goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion and sin of the people. He's put them on the goat's head. See, it was upon the confession of the priest that the sins were transferred. And something similar is true for us as benefactors of the new covenant. Now, despite what some would have you believe, Christ's forgiveness is not automatic for all. Just because he paid for it doesn't mean it applies to you. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. There's something you got to do. You got to confess. Don't be deceived. You have a role to play in your salvation. It is your response to grace that makes the difference. You must confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Do this and you will be saved. See, Jesus as our Savior fulfills both roles. He is both Savior and scapegoat. The sacrifice whose blood paid the price of our sin and the scapegoat who carries away the sin to be forgotten forever. Jesus' sacrifice was infinitely better than the animal sacrifices made under the old covenant. He was holy, innocent, and undefiled. Under the sacrificial system, an animal was to be a young male without spot or blemish. And Jesus not only met all of the requirements of the sacrifice, he exceeded them because he was fully God and fully man. He could perfectly stand in our place as humans because he possessed the same human nature that we did. That's why Christmas is so important. God came into this world as a man, fully God, so that he could live a sinless life, and die a death in our place. His voluntary sacrifice far outweighed the involuntary sacrifice of an animal. He was completely free from sin. And that's why his sacrifice didn't merely cover over our sin temporarily. It completely Put away sin, removing it entirely. No longer are we just cleansed, we are forgiven. 
This is what the angels were proclaiming when they announced Jesus' birth to Joseph. This is what they meant when they talked about Jesus as a savior who would save his people from their sins. He is savior because in him is the perfect completion of substitutionary atonement. He is the perfect lamb of God. He stood in our place and he carries away our sin to be remembered no more. And with our sin paid for and carried away, we are no longer subject to the punishment of our sin. However, without a covering for our sin, we're all subject to pay the price on our own. That's our fate etched in stone. A lamb or goat will not do. And the price for our sin is much worse than the price Marley or Scrooge would have to pay. No, the, the price you pay for your sin is much weightier than just carrying around chains forged in this life, occasionally haunting some old business partners. If only that were the case. No, the penalty for your sin and mine is death, but not physical death, eternal spiritual death, complete separation from God for all of eternity in hell. Your soul will continue on in eternity somewhere. Either it will be in the presence of God because you've received Jesus as your Savior, or it will be cast with the devil and his angels into the lake of fire. This is why Jesus warns us in Matthew 10, 28, to not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We all have a choice to make. Either we respond to the Savior by confessing our sins and accepting his free offer of grace, we choose to accept our fate. We choose to live with the punishment that comes from sin. At the end of his tale, Dickens completes what is one of the most compelling Christian allegories ever put to paper. Because Scrooge repents of his ways. He makes a complete turnaround. He even goes so far as to make amends for his guilt. See, Dickens does his best work in convincing us that there is hope for even the most covetous of old sinners. People can change. People can radically change. So Dickens closes on this note. He says, Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all and infinitely more. And to Tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city knew. And it was always said of him, he knew how to keep Christmas well. If any man alive possessed the knowledge, may that truly be said of us. And all of us, so as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us.
everyone. It's truly the mark of a person who has responded to grace. Radical change. A life that is markedly and observably different. See, it's not the the good man that saved Scrooge from his eternal punishment. It wasn't the good things he did. It was his repentance. It was his confession that he must change. And he did. We learned last week that the, the spirit of Christmas that Scrooge embraces is really the spirit of Christ. That spirit of Christ is here for us to embrace today. Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I told you that every person has a choice to make in this life. Maybe you've already made that choice. Maybe you haven't. Today, you have that opportunity. You can respond to the Savior, the free gift of God's grace, God who came as your sacrifice and your scapegoat to pay the price for your sin and carry it away so it would be remembered no more. Today you have the opportunity to respond. Christians, would you pray this with me? Dear Jesus, I come before you today as a sinner. God, I I accept the gift that you gave. I thank you for forgiving me of my sin and taking it away. Come into my heart. Be my Lord and my Savior. I give you all my life. prayed that prayer you're covered you did it that's all it takes I'm going to invite our prayer partners up um, as we close this morning and if you've got any sort of need in your life we'd love to pray with you if you prayed that prayer uh, we'd love to meet with you and talk about what your new life in Christ really means. Let me pray and you'll be dismissed. Father God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for these people. May they be blessed in the knowledge that you are their savior and scapegoat. You have taken away their sin and paid the price. May we live our lives in the light of that knowledge this Christmas and every Christmas yet to come give you glory and praise and honor. It's in your name we pray. Amen.